Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Right on time. Miss Peregrine, delighted to meet you. He's invisible. Of course. We're what's known in common parlance as peculiar. It's a recessive gene carrying down through families. Because our abilities don't fit in the outside world, we live in places like this. To keep us safe, we create a time loop. A loop preserves the last 24 hours. We set the loop can stay here forever. I knew you were one of us when you were born. It's time for you to learn what you can do. I'm just ordinary. No, you're not. You were born to protect us. From what? We call them hollows. For centuries, they've hunted us for our powers. I assure you, we are coming. I don't exactly know what I was going to expect. i tell you what, I, I was expecting exactly what I got for the first two acts, and I got exactly what I expected for the first two acts, because the trailer literally tells you the flow of the first two acts. This is either the fault of the trailer for telling you too much, or the fault of the story for being so generic that it follows that exact pattern. And it is very generic. Oh my God, is it generic? This is based on the 2011 book by Ransom Riggs, and I'm aware that this story might be of comfort to some of you guys if you've uh, seen the film and, and loved it, or, or read the book and love it, or uh, read the book, loved the book, hate the film. The book began as a collection of vintage photos that Ransom Riggs had collected. He strung a narrative together based on these peculiar photos, which honestly sounds a lot more compelling than what we saw on screen. There would be an awareness of that filter, the author acting as a curtain of narrative between imagery and reader. Our focus today is going to be why this didn't work as a cinematic experience for us. We recorded this last year around about the time we covered The Orphanage, because this is an evil version of The Orphanage. And we were going to release this at the time, but there just wasn't a slot in the schedule. However, now... On the week that Tim Burton has just released his Dumbo, it's rather time appropriate, so enjoy. Let's showcase the best element of the film, I think apart from Eva Green in her wardrobe, the score by Mark Hyam and Matthew Marchison. The very least of its crimes is that it's derivative and generic. Um, it's Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, which has been going since 1963. Harry Potter and the Search for Hogwarts, which has been going since 1997. 97. But it's also, it's, it's any situation where it's like, you're an outcast. Welcome to our world of outcasts. You know, Nightbreed, Shazam, The Matrix... 
And I get that. I get why that's appealing to people who feel isolated and alone. There are millions of stories about that stuff. And there are millions of really good stories about that stuff. Nourishing stories where people learn things. This is not one of those, but it masquerades as one of those, you are peculiar, you are like us, welcome, welcome to our family. No, that is a sheen. It's a wafer-thin shell. Everything in, it's just, it's hollow inside. There's nothing there. Sharon, do you want to lay, like, this is full spoilers on this one. Do you want to lay down what basically happens in the first act? Okay, I will do my best. You may have to correct me on order of events a little, because, okay. you know, it's a bit incoherent at times. We start with Jake, um, I want to say. Survey says Jake. Okay, so Asa Butterfield. Um, this is how Jake. great a, a film it is. We see the whole thing, and we're not entirely sure we of know the name of the name. hero. Yeah, that never happened with Harry Potter. No, not really. Um, so that didn't so, happen with Lord of the Rings. We went, what was that name? Guy's name Bobo Baggins. Mm. Um, so basically, Jake lives an ordinary it's like a if- Liam Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jake lives an ordinary, if somewhat isolated life. He is not especially close to his parents. Uh, He is especially close to his grandfather. He's an ordinary boy. Nothing peculiar about this one. He gets a phone call at work uh, to say that um, his grandfather... Does he work in a Walmart? He works in a supermarket, yeah. His granddad has had some kind of episode and his father is not available, so he has to go round there to check on his granddad and make sure that he's okay. His father, by the way, is Chris O'Dowd from TV's The IT Crowd. He's speaking American the whole way through the movie. Which it's is weird. ridiculously distracting. Um, I, frankly, I would have felt more at ease with it if he'd just spoken with an Irish Just accent. be Irish. It's great. That would have been fine. Yeah. And this is not a criticism of Chris O'Dowd. It just seemed really weird. Uh, sorry, Chris O'Dowd's uh, American accent, which is very good. It just didn't seem to it's be It's weird coming him. out of him, you know? Yeah. He goes round to his grandfather's house. His grandfather is played by Terence Stamp. Kneel before Zod. Indeed. He gets round to the house and uh, he's spoken to his grandfather on the phone and he seems very agitated. Uh, He mentions to his boss that uh, his grandfather suffers from some kind of dementia. Doesn't this boss get out a goddamn hand cannon at this point? There's a monster and his boss is just shooting it with this giant magnum. And I thought, is she like a protector? Oh no, she's just an American. In which case she's packing. Yeah, they they get... There's there's this whole thing where he says on the phone, I can't find the key for my gun cabinet. And he says, well, yeah, dad took it for safekeeping. Um, how does he expect me to fight the monsters without a gun? Um, at which point the phone goes dead. Jake gets round there. Screen door's been ripped to shreds. To shreds, you say? To shreds, indeed. Um, he goes out to get his boss, who's the one who's driven him round, and she says, It's okay, I have a thirty-eight in the car. She's the trailer park mom from Mars Attacks, by the way. Oh, is she? Mm. Okay. I thought I recognised her, but I couldn't place her. Um, so, And then he finds Terence Stamp, his grandfather, out in the back garden... With his eyes missing. He's got no eyes. Which is a strong flavour to start a movie with, I will tell you that. I got kids here. It's a very strong flavour to start a kids movie with. And I mean, this is like the Da Vinci Code. Indeed. So um, his grandfather is out back with no eyes and a bloody carving fork in one hand. Uh, Jake sees what appear to be monsters of some description in the mist at the end of the garden. Uh, the boss turns up. Fires wildly into the smoke. Honestly, if it was uh, audio described for the blind, it would say monsters of some description. Yeah. They're very ill-defined. They're very vague at this point. You can't really see what's what's going on. 
I can't even really remember well, what no, happened it, at this it, point. It, there's a lot like, of back There's and a lot forth. of flashbacks of like his grandfather telling him about Miss Peregrine's yeah. home for peculiar children. So he finds so he he remembers all of these stories that he's been told about this children's home where his his grandfather spent time when he was young. Um although I did quite like the the it's quite a nice touch that his grandfather was evacuated from Poland. Yeah. Um, in the forties, monsters, and and he says that that he knows about monsters, which is quite a nice touch. Oh, hang on, he did say with long arms, and then we find out later that the monsters really do have long arms, which suggests that the Hellgast or whatever they're called, Hologast, Hologast. Sorry, Hellgast is from Killzone. Yeah, the Holocaust uh, was uh, the, the the Nazis were there, there were actual monsters in Poland, which somewhat diminishes well, the uh, yeah, I mean, real the, import of the Nazis. The way it kind of came across to me was that like World War Two and the whole Nazi issue was going on in Poland, yeah. but little Abe was more worried about the monsters with the big teeth and the long arms. Right, yeah. Again, like I said, it's, it's kind of like the fact that Cap didn't actually fight Nazis. Yeah. He fought Hydra, which were kind of like Nazis, Cobra Nazis. Yeah, so... I just wanted to see him punch more Nazis now. Just, just, just <laughs> punching them. Cut to Jake discussing the situation with his psychologist. Yeah. Oh, Alison Janney. Yeah. Made us cheer. Mm-hmm. Did indeed. She's in and out of the film. He discusses with her and with his parents the idea that in order to get some kind of closure over his grandfather's death, maybe it would be a good idea for him to go to this island off Wales where Miss Peregrine's home for children hmm. was and see it and maybe meet anybody who is still there, get some kind of resolution yeah. to all of these stories. Which I was his, totally behind. I'm like, yeah, that's and good. Also, it kicks off an adventure, but absolutely. it's psychologically sound. Yeah, absolutely. And Alison Janney is sort of basically saying to him, yeah, I think the, the idea of getting closure sounds like a, a, a sensible, well, not a sensible one, but she, she concurs that his yeah. idea is a good one. So um, his mum, who is very distracted and almost almost not present, she almost didn't need to she be in this no film. She has no presence at all. Yeah, literally she is there to play on her mobile phone and, and make it look like he has absolutely no maternal relationship whatsoever. He doesn't. So, he barely has a paternal relationship. It's yeah. all just him and his grandfather. Indeed. Uh, so, I don't get why he even has parents. It would make more sense for it to be more like a Roald Dahl story and he was raised by Terence Stamp. Yeah. Yeah, no, that would be logical. But then he wouldn't be a normal boy. He's so average and normal mm. and boring. Anyway. Um, we so know some people might really like Ace of Butterfield from Hugo and... Oh, Ender's Game? Ender's Game. Okay. That was him. Do you remember? Yeah, no, no, no. Now you say it, I do yeah. remember. Do you remember but his I, pale wan face? Yeah, but I, I, that wasn't... He kind of looks like Skander Keynes. A little bit. And by the end of this, actually, I did say he looks sort of like a young Killian Murphy. He's, so he's also which been is high to praise a, coming uh, from me. He's like Johnny Depp. So he's also he's like everyone basically. <laughs> he was almost Spider-Man. He's like every thin, pale boy with floppy black hair. How um, could he possibly have endeared himself to Tim Burton? Mm, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> just be just be pleased he didn't give you really really long fingernails, Asa. And I know what for. What are you implying, my man? Nothing. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's libel. No, I, I, I quite like Ace of Butterfield. He's, he's, he's a good guy, and you know he, he was stable and steady the whole way through this mm. garbage fire. Yeah. But yeah, he he is probably on the list of good things in it. It's a short list. It's a short list. Yeah. My God. Yeah. So Chris O'Dowd takes him to this island, and he kind of wangles it with this whole thing about you know Dad can work on his book and and do bird watching, which apparently is what his dad does. And uh, so he says, "Okay, let's it's go." Great crack. And they get there. 
and they go and stay in this little ramshackle pub. Then, as soon as they step in the pub, it's like beware the moor. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, he comes across some children. No, no, he goes to the ruins of this old home. Do you remember the name of the home? By the oh, way? the house. No, I don't know. Are you sure? I'm guessing. That's the thing. You need to give this house a name, a name that elicits wonder and curiosity and a little bit of fear and tension. Hogwarts, Weirwood, the House of Versteckt, Bellworth, Ravenwood, Willowhaven. You know? Some uh, personality. Yeah, but it doesn't have a name. It's just Miss Peregrine's home. Not, you know, Allerdale Hall or... Crimson Peak, the Spencer Mansion. Give the houses their own personality, you know? Give them their own character. Mm. Make the home a a presence in the story. More than just the house that belongs to this woman. If it has its own name, it has its own history. It becomes more mysterious by default. As it is, it's not, really. Ghost kids turn up, and they're just kids, and they're like, Oh, hello, how are you you doing? Come, Come with us. And then they lead him through this wrecked ruin and into a cave by out by the sea where he goes through a portal and then comes back through into 1943. And then they uh, get on a pony and trap and ride back to the house. And he goes, what is this? What, 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 I don't understand. And, and the girl, Emma, says, oh, this is 1943, uh, September the 3rd. It's our loop. And then they carry on. And she says, it's our loop, as one would say to anyone. Like, it's, oh, it's our, it's our loop. Now, I get that in Harry Potter, Ron makes a lot of offhand comments about magic stuff because he's grown up in magic world, and Ron is a dimbo a lot of the time. He's not fantastic at putting himself in other people's shoes. This is a weakness that he persists with. And early on, he's 11. You know, Harry's just coming into this new world. Ron doesn't have any context of the outside world. So it doesn't occur to him to explain anything. Yeah. And I I understand that they were probably trying to invoke mystery by dropping things here and there and not elaborating on them but it's not a mystery because we already because know, we know from, the trailer. from the trailer yeah. now a lot could be said here about the damage that a trailer can actually do specifically to mysteries where the pacing of the original story is predicated upon finding out more and more as you go along but the trailer being marketing hits you with every relevant detail to give you a complete picture. Ergo, the flow of the story is entirely at odds with the promotion of that story. Audiences are unwilling to sit down with something unquantifiable, in general. You get individuals who like going in completely blind, but the average audience member wants to pretty much know exactly what's going to happen. And if you defy them on that, your film is not a success. Unless you're Marvel, with Avengers Endgame. He then meets Miss Peregrine, a collection, a grab bag of peculiarities, idiosyncrasies and quirks. She smokes a pipe, how ruthlessly absurd, for about four seconds, then she puts it down, then she never smokes it again. And they made sure to show Miss Peregrine wielding a crossbow on the poster, even though, again, this is for one particular task that she does daily. Miss Peregrine goes, ah, right, well, let me be the exposition queen for you. And she tells him in her weird Eva Green voice about 17 different things one after the next. And again, much of this information conveyed here 
is material the distributors could not let anyone come into the cinema not already knowing. And because it serves very little function besides setup of an already established premise, it did not, for us, inspire intrigue. You have to really watch it in the scripting stages and think about how re-watching the film is going to feel. Because oftentimes, if you've seen the trailer, your first viewing is in essence a rewatch. Even some of the most celebrated movies of all time, Inception, spend a great deal of their real estate re-explaining premises that people already have a grasp on, in a way that does not richly characterise those speaking. This is why, in my own writing, every scene has to achieve more than one thing. Mm. Also, the fact that this was directed by Tim Burton means that I could never quite shake the feeling that he's literally just moved on to a younger model of Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, that makes sense. And if Eva Green turns up in future movies of his, that will simply cement that. Come see Eva Green, now starring in Dumbo. I mean, she's got that kind of uh, vampire, Elvira, Morticia Adams thing going on. I like Eva Green as well. Mm. I mean, I, I even I like her as Miss Peregrine, but she's an awful person, awful to the core, and they never make a point of that. No, and this, right, this is something, this is basically oh, no, what... We need to explain the loop before we go into the, okay. the problem, but right. there are some problems. So uh, Miss Peregrine is an imbreen, which means she's a sorceress of sorts, or a magical-type person, and uh, they have two powers. Uh, They can control time and turn into birds. Get used to the idea of two otherwise in no way linked powers, because pretty much everyone has two otherwise in no way linked powers. It's... Out of control. It's like Kitty Pride in Days of Future Past just happens to be able to also do time travel as well as her phasing. In the comics, it's just the phasing. They added the time travel because they didn't want to introduce Rachel Summers, Phoenix 2. They were like, oh, we can't introduce Rachel. Some people don't know who she is. Just give Kitty her time travel power. Kitty, the shapeshifter? Yeah, no, no one will question it. Are you sure no one will question it? Now, it's important to note Every character having a grab bag of seemingly unrelated powers is not a plot hole. And in isolation, it's not that much of a problem. You know, you just take the internal fiction of the world whereby people develop two unrelated mutant or magical powers. But in combination with everything else, it's one of a series of problems. What it is not is a plot hole. And I have very little interest in looking for plot holes. No, what we're looking at here is a lack of cohesion between what we're seeing and what we're being told. Speaking of X-Men, Miss Peregrine leads him out onto the lawn of this, you know, beautiful, well-appointed old mansion. This is my home for peculiar children. And then there's a whole bunch of mutant kids running around doing their mutant powers. It's being presented to us as if we haven't seen the last 19 years worth of movies. This was baffling to me in the trailer. I was like, okay... So it's Westchester. Anonymity is a mutant's first defense against the world's hostility. To the public, we're merely a school for gifted youngsters. Cyclops, Storm, and Jean were some of my first students. I protected them, taught them to control their powers, and in time, teach others to do the same. The students are mostly runaways, frightened, alone, Some with gifts so extreme that they've become a danger to themselves and those around them. Like your friend Rogue, incapable of physical human contact, probably for the rest of her life. 
And yet here she is with others her own age, learning, being accepted, not feared. The X-Men movies pretty much dropped the idea of there being students that were of any interest to us at all when we had Wolverine, Charles and Eric to look at. Oh, and then there's the matter of all those girls calling Jean Freak in the horribly written X-Men Apocalypse, where, as I said on our show on that film, this is the one school in the world they're not supposed to do that. And they never address that fact in the film. We're what's known as peculiar. You met the twins. This is Claire. <laughs> Millard, pass the ball. Millard, you met. Come on. And that's you. <gasps> Stop cheating, you. Did you catch the difference there? Patrick Stewart gave us a whole bunch of context in a bland X-Men movie. He gave us some idea of what we were looking at. The point of view of the children, the stated goals of the school. In this film, she just states name of child. Child then embiggens vegetables or is twins with sacks on their heads or has bees come out of his mouth. It's performatively peculiar and strange doesn't equal substance. And we're now skirting around the heart of my problem with Tim Burton. Also, the, the selection of powers is not interesting if the holders of those powers prove to have very little in the way of personality or character. They've got nothing! We always, I always personally complain about Brian Singer sticking firework mutants in the background to go, look, I've got fire powers, I can turn into Metal Man. But all of these kids have got a power and that's more interesting than they are. And it's not an interesting power. So, for example, the Peculiars, one of them has, is a little girl who has super strength. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And then she's, uh, you know, she's, she's dragging his ass around and she looks like Shirley Temple. And then she goes to eat her dinner and she lifts her little curly hair up at the back and a, a giant shark mouth at the back of her head starts eating a chicken leg. Oh, it's disgusting. Th- there's no relation between girl with shark mouth in back of head and girl with super strength. That's, that's two very disparate flavors. Mm. Like well, you've that- either got a shark mouth or you're super strong, <laughs> little girl. Or you can have both of these powers... But in that case, you have to be a character. A kid with a mouth in the back of its head who is also super strong? I want to know what that kid thinks. And she doesn't say shit. It did lead Lyra to start speculating about whether she had two stomachs and four sets of intestines or whether both of these mouths fed into the same stomach? No questions! This is all just veneer. There are no questions because there are no answers because this is not thought out. Or if it was thought out by Ransom Riggs, that did not translate to how Tim Burton saw the story. And what's distressing to me personally is that one woman adapted the book into the screenplay, Jane Goldman. She adapted Stardust, the Neil Gaiman book, into the 2007 film that nobody saw. I adore Stardust can't stand Neil Gaiman's book. Neil Gaiman's one of the most gifted writers of our age. She turned that into something I really loved. She also adapted Kick-Ass from Mark Millar's horrible book. She was one of the four-person writing team on X-Men First Class, along with Matthew Vaughan, the director. 
She and Vaughan also hammered out the story for Days of Future Past, which Simon Kinberg then wrote. The Woman in Black, which had a massive effect on me. Looking at all this information, I am finding it increasingly difficult to just lay this upon the screenplay. It's not a copycat X-Men film by accident. The studio went out of their way to get the co-writer of what's looking like Fox's only great X-Men team film. And now I'm wondering what Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children would have been like if it had been directed by Matthew Vaughan. That's just kid one. Another kid, Emma, the the lead girl who also joins in the co-exposition with Miss Peregrine, she's a, an aeronaut or something? What's the, I, I'm, I don't they gave that. a name for it. Okay. But, I mean, I, I don't want to say, oh, this is all bollocks, because, I mean, airbenders can produce air from their bodies. Mm. So she's an airbender, which basically means that if she takes off her metal shoes, she will just drift up into the air because she's lighter than air. And... There's a point where she goes out in a boat and then jumps off the boat, the little rowboat, and then sinks to the bottom of the sea with her metal shoes and then walks around in the wreck of an old sunken ship. Then she fills the room that they're in with air. Although my main issue with that was where did the water go? Because there's no indication that the water is is being pushed out of the room or anything like that. It doesn't make any... Like, physics can take a running jump at this point. The actual what's going on... Is kind of beautiful. And I love the idea of exploring sunken wrecks. That's what... It frustrates me because what they're dealing with is of interest. And were this film directed by Guillermo del Toro and had everything been carefully thought out so that it's not necessarily explained but the director knows what's going on and then when you listen to the commentary you feel like a bloody fool because he's thought of everything that would have made for a substantive film. Or even if you're not supposed to take anything literally and it's all just symbolic. I'm absolutely fine with that. A film I saw last year called Annihilation I really genuinely didn't like. And then Dan Olsen of Folding Ideas illuminated all the subtext that was there if you didn't just take it on face value. And I rewatched it again, and I got all that subtext. I still hate the film, but I get it at least. But I struggled to find anything going on below the surface of Miss Peregrine. And that kills the idea of it being symbolic. There's another girl who's just fire. Boils a kettle by touching it. Like Captain Marvel did recently. Do they use it in an interesting way? She sets fire to several things throughout the course of the story. I, they did actually do quite an interesting thing with her at the very end where she goes up against a monster that has ice powers yeah. and can't set fire to him. Mm. And then his ice power overtakes her heat and she freezes. Yeah, but then she's fine. But then she's fine. And that confrontation and her weakness doesn't really mean anything. It's all just surface level. But like I said, she's fine. Her eyes don't rupture because of the cold. And before you say, it's a kid's movie, why would they have eyes rupturing? Oh, don't even start. There's a scene in this. There is a scene in this film. (laughs) The monsters in question that they are pursuing live on eyeballs. Child eyeballs. Ideally children's eyeballs. I mean that quite literally. Every person they grab... It's got to be a peculiar. It's got to be a peculiar. A mutant. Um, they they suck out their eyeballs. They, they pull out their eyeballs. They have spiky they, they fingers. They suck their eyeballs they out of their, their eyes, heads with tentacles. Pull them out and then eat them. But there's a scene where they, they 
literally stack up a giant pile of eyeballs. Like they've raided the whole school and they're like, right, get all the eyeballs together and we'll have a nice little... On a table and they're all sat there eating eyeballs with... Is it with spoons or something? They're just... They're like... Their hands, their big, long, weird hands. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just sat there staring at it thinking, these are the eyeballs of children. Right, the eating the eyes thing is terrifying to begin with. You can heavily imply it, and they've succeeded in doing that by having Terence Stamp found with no eyes, mm. and then having it mentioned when they're talking about the monsters later on. But to proceed to show you exactly what they do, exactly how they do it, and exactly that they've done it to this many people already is beyond the flipping pale, frankly. It's not necessary, it's hideous. And for the rest of the film, I literally couldn't think of anything else other than you had a stack of children's eyeballs on that table. You had a stack of children's eyeballs on that table. And at that point, your narrative becomes irrelevant because you had a stack of children's eyeballs on a table. Oh, get me the Shirley Temple shark girl's eyeballs. I want to eat them. It's horrid. I am not averse to darkness in kids' stories. In fact, I thrive on it. But there's got to be a measure. There has got to be a juice to squeeze. Like there's got to be light to equate to the darkness. There's got to be texture to like to build you up to the terror and the grotesque. The pale man in Pan's Labyrinth, that monster with no eyes, is sitting at a table of food that is representational of eating people. That is this concept handled elegantly. Bluebeard is not a story where a woman just walks into a house and immediately finds a room full of seven heads. You've got to build up to that shit. And And that's not a kid's story. Also, this is ripping so heavily. And I don't say borrowing. It is ripping so heavily from the works of Guillermo del Toro. My God. But without the finesse... I am all for wearing your influences on your sleeve. I do it myself. Del Toro might be my number one. But I am also all for bringing more to the table. So if you're going to lift from Del Toro at all, lift the fact that he thinks about everything. One of the kids can put a heart in a dead person and bring them back to life. Like, he just sort of pulls a weird rubber heart out of nowhere and just sort of slides it under someone's chest. Them. Oh, he makes them in his... In his little workshop. Work, but that kid's hearts. a flipping sociopath. And then he puts them into the bodies of corpses. Like, there's this one kid gets his eyeballs sucked out and he brings him back to life and the kid goes... And it's like, oh, that was fucking terrifying. Is there anything more to that scene? No, just a nightmare. Just a nightmare, then. All of, like, all not, of as in that. not in the context of the film, it's a nightmare. It's just there to give the kids nightmares. And all of that, that whole thing about... I can't even remember his name. They don't have names. They don't have personalities. Heart Boy. Okay, Heart Boy. The whole thing of setting up the fact that he can basically bring things to life by putting these little plastic heart, uh, rubber hearts in them is effectively just set up for the fact that part of the finale is he creates an army of skeletons yep. to come out and fight the monsters. No, doing... Lyra saw it coming as soon right. as she saw the piles of bones. She oh, was okay. like, oh, he's going to put hearts in them and it's going to bring them all to life and they're going to fight the monsters. And that's exactly what happened. Why, what, why, why fuck around with a heart thing? Why can't he just be a necromancer who can puppeteer the dead? Be less fixated on the quirkiness that you're achieving with this heart idiosyncrasy. Focus instead on the mechanics of how he's controlling them and, more crucially, what that does to him as a character. If it's just used as an excuse to make stuff happen, you're not really achieving anything cinematically. 
But no, he's or give just him some sort of personality. He's just like the older kid who's quite pushy. That's it. There's not like there's no link between his power and who he is. No, he's Scott he's, effectively. His arc consists of being ticked off with Jake when he arrives because stay away from my girlfriend. He fancies this girl called Emma who can float, and meantime he is adored for some utterly strange reason by Olive, the girl who can set things on fire, but he ignores Olive in favour of adoring Emma, and there's this whole little subplot where there's this jealousy rivalry thing going on. And I would, Was there? And yeah. I didn't even detect that. They talk about They're it. They're pushy that, with each other, but like the the, I didn't feel that was... A, that didn't qualify as a subplot. They that's kept, more of an incident. They kept referring to the fact that... I'm, I'm going to call him Enoch. I can't remember if that is his actual I think it is name, Enoch. But, okay, so they keep talking about the fact that Enoch is, is jealous, and, and it took me a while to work out what they meant, jealous of question mark oh hang on a minute he's got a thing for Emma and apparently it seems that Emma has a thing for Jake because she potentially had a thing for his grandfather that's really creepy which is A creepy and weird and B you never see any evidence of this the the chemistry between Asa Butterfield and the girl playing Emma is precisely dick throughout the entire film nada nothing nothing and Enoch's arc and this annoyed me Enoch's arc throughout the film is basically to realise that he needs to let go of his crush on Emma and recognise that Olive is the girl for him after all and has been there for him all along. And when that happened and he was like, oh, oh and he literally says, Olive, you were right there and I never saw it. <laughs> That's and better for so, you. And it's and right, right here, flame bending. And my instant response was, sod off, she's more than just there to be your second best Emma. Second best, Emma. Uh, there's also these two sack-headed kids straight out of The Orphanage. You ever see that Guillermo del Toro-produced movie, The Orphanage? That brilliant, wonderful, my favourite ghost story, See It Right Now, directed by uh, Bayona, the uh, uh, director of uh, Monster Calls, which I also really, really like. Um, so, yeah, there's a, sa- a, a, a ghost kid in that called Tomas with a sack over his head. And there's two ghost kids in this because we're doubling it. And it's like, well, these are the twins. What do they do? They're called the twins. What's the, what are their names? They're the twins. What can they do? We'll see. And then at the end, they pull off their little sack boy heads and they go, and they're both like Medusa because they turn someone to stone. So we got two little Medusas. What's their thing? I don't know. At one point, Miss Peregrine rips a teddy bear in half so they can both play with half a teddy bear. It's like, oh, isn't that quirky? And like the kids should just go... All right, okay, so you just ruined a toy. Cheers for that. But they I don't speak because they don't have personalities. I had to laugh at Lyra's response for that. When they when they turned somebody into stone, her immediate question was, what happened to their parents? Did they turn them to stone the second they were born? Very and that's likely. why they're in this orphanage. And I said that the Peculiars probably developed their powers round about puberty. Although that's not or true necessarily of shark girl Shirley Temple. Mm. Sharky Temple. I would I would have accepted it a bit more... If Shirley Temple had been super freakish strength and like had been looking like a normal girl, and then when she starts to eat a chicken leg, she goes I'm not, and like her she, her mouth goes all like rabid and and toothy. But the fact that it's in the back of her head, you have to know that everyone immediately goes to Voldemort with that, right? You you have to know that that everyone will immediately think Voldemort. I guess what I'm trying to say is, especially in literary terms, things mean things. Then there's another kid who can make seeds grow really big without water, sunshine, or mass transfer. She literally just, like, points her fingers at the ground, and a carrot grows really big out of nothing. There's no energy transfer, there's no biology, there's no physics, there's no nothing. It's just, big carrot, 
Jumanji, and then it's just there. There's a brand of fantasy writing called magical realism. And in principle, there are a lot of things that I love that actually utilize magical realism. It's essentially the mundane world, only there's magic in it, and the magic has to kind of fit. The concessions I make within my writing are that magic has a cost. If something miraculous has to happen, then there's got to be a price paid for it. This is magical surrealism. Now, in an artistic sense, that suggests that the magic would contain elements of surprise, unexpected juxtapositions, and non-sequiturs. Check, check, check. Less so surprise because they showed everything in the trailer. However, as it says on the internet ticker here, many surrealist artists and writers regard their work as an expression of the philosophical movement first and foremost, with the works being an artifact. And I've been left in more recent years increasingly wondering what Tim Burton is saying with his recurring imagery. And then there's a boy whose power is bees. That's it. He's got bees coming out of him. He's like a Bioshock. That's it. Spoiler warning, Jake's power is he can see these invisible monsters that like to suck out your eyes and eat them for jujubes. Mm. This is the same power that his granddad had. Yes. Which is a very useful power when you're being stalked by an invisible monster, but not at any other time. But that makes him the chosen one. Anyway, his granddad basically left, because we're going to talk about the time loop thing now. Like, like, imagine, like, you're like, how could the granddad be there? Time loop. They're stuck in September the 3rd, 1943. And it's always that day over and over again. At the very end of the day, at night, the Luftwaffe flew overhead and dropped a bomb on this, let's call it an orphanage. And then the bomb destroyed the place. But Miss Peregrine always gets all the kids outside to stand there and look up at the sky and then gets her stopwatch out and then rewinds the day just as the bomb's about to fall and explode. Just like the unexploded bomb in The Devil's Backbone, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Now, obviously, this is a different context, but it's still an orphanage with an unexploded bomb hanging overhead, like a sort of Damocles all the time. It's... I would say it's the same metaphor, but the war ended 70 years ago. And everything Miss Peregrine does is to prevent violence from entering into her territory. But in doing so, she also prevents anything from the outside world getting into her territory. Which goes curiously unexamined the entire film. Now, some questions. Because it says in the book, it says in the blurb, and they say in the film, this allows the children to escape ageing. However, <laughs> physics, when you're experiencing a day, your body's cells age. They diminish. They deteriorate. They shed themselves. You, you lose those cells. Your brain gets older, gets more mature, grows more complex. You learn new things. You step outside, and they're still within the loop, aren't they, when they turn it backwards? I'm not sure. They're outside the house... They can't be outside the loop because the loop affects the whole island. Because if you remember when they go into the pub, right. it's 1943 there too. Okay, so they're not outside the loop. But she's, she's rewinding time inside that, right. If she's changing the cellular regeneration of their bodies and like putting the cells back in there, she would also be giving them brain damage so that they were going to forget that day. Mm. That's not the case. No. They remember each day. Yeah, they know they're in a loop. If you've read or seen Interview with a Vampire, you'll know what happens to a little girl when you make her live for hundreds of years. She becomes an adult who then goes crazy because she can't become an adult. I can't believe that this wasn't the case. Like, like, that no one said to Ransom Riggs, 
but the kids, Ransom, you're making these kids be kids. And it's like, well, well maybe Miss Peregrine and, and the kids, like, push forwards the, the advances of science or that like, they help humanity in some other way. Like, in their, their little loop, they're doing they something. They that find isn't purpose. Just, yeah. And it's not just the fact that they're, they're stuck in this loop and can't affect anything outside of it. It's also the fact that Miss Peregrine makes them relive the same day over and over again. She times them. She, You'll get, like, one of them will come running up to her and she's like, yep, right on time, because they're all doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same moments, but they know this. The younger ones, I'm not. it's not quite clear whether they do or not, but Emma, at one point, tells Jake she has to go and catch a baby squirrel that's about to fall out of a tree. Like the boy that fell out of the tree in Groundhog Day. But Phil was forced to Groundhog Day. He couldn't get out. Mm. He couldn't change his stars. And he was looking for purpose in that little existential closed loop that he had found himself in. And let us not forget that he searched for that purpose after killing himself over and over again because he couldn't go on. The children give no indication that they are conscious of or willing to go along with this. They've got these incredible powers... And they're basically forced to play around with their bees, play football, rip teddy bears in half, grow carrots, eat in this tiny little enclosed space, never growing, never allowed to advance, never allowed to... They're allowed to leave, but that has so many questions attached to it that we'll go into in a second anyway. But... Uh, this is the central conceit of the film, is that they live this over and over again, and isn't that lovely? And the fact that it's never questioned of Miss Peregrine, you're making them stay children. Those twins who wear sacks on their heads and never speak, mentally should be about 82 years old. Let that one sink in, folks. You're a monster. That's the story, right there. She has to protect these kids because of what happened to her friends, her friends who all horribly killed and had their eyes eaten. So she's keeping them captive. Her journey would be to let them go but that's not what this film is or that being she becomes the antagonist and the children break free of it and effectively overthrow her but you have the pathos of this repeating day in the fact that one of these horrible hideous monsters with no eyes and big teeth and long arms comes up the cliff and comes towards the house and she kills it with a crossbow and she has to kill it with a crossbow every, every day, day in the same the, spot. The and same it always falls in the same at little the same outline. Time. Which she can't see either. No. Uh, and The Orphanage uh, is, is a story about child ghosts repeating the same patterns over and over again because something very terrible happened. And at the end, that pattern is broken. And that's a good thing because they shouldn't do this same thing over and over again. You copied that element of the orphanage but you didn't get the orphanage Mm. we know that it wasn't got because what happens at the end is that loop has to be closed circumstances dictate they cannot stay in that house anymore they have to let that loop closed but instead of then looking now we're going to go out into the world and see what we can do there they find another loop they create a new loop And there's a huge amount of problems connected with that as well, but we'll get them to those in a minute. And they talk about the fact that there are other homes run by other inbreens elsewhere. All over the world doing the exact same shit. Exactly, with groups of peculiar children who are kept and contained in repeating loops for no apparent reason, other than allegedly to keep them safe. 
And you'd think that with Asa Butterworth turning up with his incredible power to see these things, they can change all that by going, right, we're going on the offensive now. We're going to save all those kids, eliminate all of these monsters, because now we have you. And we can stop being stuck on these loops. Again, that's an even better ending. The whole film can be read as a metaphor for overprotective parents. And its conclusions feel unhealthy. Especially when held up against dozens of similar, much better films about overprotective parents. More questions about the time loop. At one point, Miss Peregrine just casually offhand says, I might have to kill some policemen. And he goes, did she really have to kill some policemen? And she goes, oh, only when things go wrong. And it's like, you actually did murder some policemen. Ha ha ha, funny. No, no, she's a murderess. She's insane. But the implication is that there's, it doesn't matter because there are no consequences because yeah. the day will reset when it gets to the end of the loop and those policemen will be fine. Yes, but you might have to kill them again tomorrow. Do you know what Phil didn't do in Groundhog Day? Kill people. He killed himself. He killed himself because that's his responsibility. He tried to keep people alive. Come on, come on, uh, come on, breathe. Breathe, breathe. He didn't kill policemen who got in his way. More recently, Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You have protagonists that exhibit a very dark sense of humour, but they do have an ethical backbone to them. Miss Peregrine has spread her obsession to all the children. They have no personality, but they're basically cult members. Mm, yeah. I love every one of my children. I, but I do believe she loves these children, but if she truly loved them, it has to also incorporate allowing them to go. Yeah. If you go to the colour wheel from our fandom show, what she's exhibiting is not secure love. This is obsession. Um, I have a question, actually, and this has just occurred to me, and I don't know why this didn't occur to me while we were watching the film. Abe, Jake's grandfather, yeah. stayed at the home for a... Time. A, a duration of time. Time passed, he got older. He was a child when he arrived there, he was an adult when he left. Yes. How? Because time passed while he was there. He left the house to go and join the army, and that night the bomb fell. This loop, it would appear, exists because the bomb was about to fall on the house. But when they talk about the other homes, were bombs about to fall on those houses too? Did the Imbreens have to... If Because if, if the, they exist in a looped state... All the time, regardless of whether or not a bomb is about to fall on the house. Yeah. How did Abe get older? How did Abe get older? How did they communicate with each other? For the past 70 years or so, they've been exchanging letters and postcards. As he got older and older and she stayed the same age, visiting a constantly updating post office. One presumes... Why does the loop exist? Does the loop exist to protect them from the bomb falling on the house... Or were they living in a loop already? Go somewhere else that's not going to be bombed so you're not living under the bomb. Mm. Do you know who did live under the bomb? The United States of America, Europe, Russia, most of the world for several decades. It was shit. They've done literally Cold the same War thing. State. And yet, especially with the 1940s setting, 
At no point did I feel like that was a subtext of the movie. There's definitely a thread there regarding mutually assured destruction that could have been a key element between them and their enemies, these eyeball-eating monsters. Who, remember, got that way, this inhuman abominable form, by doing too much bad science creating the atomic bomb. I get it. There is a slight attempt, now I think about it, there is a slight attempt to explain this. Emma does say that when an inbreen sets up the loop Mm -hmm. for their house and their children, they try to pick the perfect day. I'm going to tell you right here and now, no day is the perfect day if you have to fucking live it every day for the rest of your life. She would not have chosen that day to create the loop, but she had to because the bomb was about to fall, so she then had run out of days to... But then, again, that begs the question, what were they doing before that? Were they were they living in a loop before then? In which case, how did Abe age? Were they not living in a loop? Does, does the inbreen, when she sets up the home for the children, does she kind of designate, right, I'm going to wait 10 years for these peculiar children to be born and, and come into this loop here? Editor's note, we had just seen the film at the point we recorded this, and our inability to remember these details speaks very poorly of its ability to convey this setup information. We pay attention to stuff like that. We don't just willfully sit there going, come on, explain it to me. No, too much explanation. I'm very aware that this sounds more dangerously close to cinema sins than we've ever been. The way those YouTube shows are put together, Scott Atkinson watches the film in chronological order, and then whenever he has any point to make, any sin to tally, he pauses it, makes his shitty uninformed complaint, and moves on. The modus operandi of cinema sins is never to examine the text of the film as a whole, which is what we're attempting to do here. So we could not find these character reasonings upon which the entire plot hangs. But it might actually have been in there. So if anyone listening can actually tell us the circumstances for this, please do. It might make the film slightly less creepy, like unintentionally creepy. Obviously, it's supposed to be kind of creepy, but creepy in a way where you just want to get away from it as soon as possible because everyone in it seems to be fixated on exploiting children. How does she get the children? Like, they all just come to her? How? It's never explained. There's no owls. There's no Jedi going, oh, your child is special. I'm mm. going to bring him back to my weird, creepy they cult. Just, they just turn up. In Jake's case, it's because his grandfather, who was a peculiar but left and then grew old, sent him there, effectively. At one point, Terence... Does the same apply for the others? Terence Stamp, now in the army, calls up and speaks to the 15-year-old Emma... She's a kid. Which rather And suggests, he's like a 20-something Terence Stamp. Which rather suggests they were not living in a loop before that. And when Abe arrived as a child, Emma was a couple of years younger than him. They both aged to a point where she was 16. He was, let's say, 18 for argument's sake, even though that guy on the phone is clearly in, at least in his early 20s. He's a very tally-ho-pip-pip, like a matter-of-life-and-death type. Like, you would not pair him up with a 15-year-old girl. No. Tell her, Pip Pip, I'm Terence Stamp. But again, like I said, I can kind of get my head around that. If that then means that basically they weren't living in a loop up to that point, 
then she had to set the loop at that point because of the bomb. All of this exposition to, to explain something which is really straight away easily apparent that we could tell within a two-minute trailer, we understood everything about it. They spent 50 minutes explaining what all that was that we already knew, and we've spent 50 minutes asking questions because none of this makes sense. Is it really exposition anymore if all it does is complicate what was previously simple? At what point does it cease to be exposition and becomes obfuscation? <laughs> I've confused myself. Me too. I'm bass aquas on this one. My brain is in a loop now. Right, I'm going to read you some from Wikipedia. This is literally part of the, the next part of the, um, the, the the story. Jake is introduced to the rest of the children, including aerokinetic Emma Bloom, with whom he is attracted, as Abe was. Jake learns that he himself is a peculiar, and like Abe, has the ability to see the invisible monsters from Abe's stories. Hollow guests, or hollows. This is to explain what hollows are. Hollows are disfigured, peculiar scientists that killed an imbreen in a failed experiment to become immortal by harvesting her powers. Led by shapeshifter Mr. Barron, they hunt peculiars, mostly children, to consume their eyeballs. These eyeballs allow them to become whites, with regained visible human form, but with milky white eyes. That sounds like a truck full of Scientology had a head-on collision with a truck full of recent Final Fantasy lore. But secondly, oh, like we can finally attain human form. The fucking monsters that are stalking them don't have intelligence. They're just sort of these, like, fleshy insectoids from out of the mist. Like, and when they get human form, they have these milky white eyes. And we find out later that Mr. Baron became human again and also took the form of, I be- is it Rupert Everett? Yes. Yeah, Rupert Everett's this scientist just mooching around the island. I was like, right, obviously he's dodgy as hell. He's probably Samuel L. Jackson. And then we find out that Alison Jenny was also Samuel L. Jackson. It was all part of the plan, you see. Which means he's been existing outside of the loop. Although I think they do say that these these monsters are not within the loops. They they jump around from loop to loop trying to find and consume peculiars. Je- Dame Judy Dench is in this. She has her own loop in 2016. 2016, remember that? Why would you want to experience a day in 2016 again and again and again? Hell! You are consigning these children to hell! You maniacs! You didn't listen! Uh, you know what? I can't imagine a worse fate than being forced to live 2016 again and again. And guess what? Alan Rickman's died. Oh, guess what? Alan Rickman's died. Oh, guess what? Trump's still running for president. Oh, guess what? He just said emails. I am on record as saying that we need to put more money into the Social Security Trust Fund. That's part of uh, my commitment to raise taxes on the wealthy. My Social Security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, But what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust Fund by making sure that we have sufficient resources. (sighs) Judy Dench gets killed, unceremoniously. Um, she's... Yeah, she was killed. Was she? Yeah. Okay. Killed by a thing. Do you okay. remember seeing her? Nope. Okay. 
this is basically the entire trailer runs up to this point, and it was like the the end of Act Two, beginning of Act Three, which is uh, Miss Peregrine says to Asa Butterfield, "You have to look after them now." Then turns into a bird and fucks off. And I was like, right, okay, I I, I understand exactly what happens in the first two acts of this film, and that happens up to this point. And I was like, right. Better have a fucking phenomenal third act where you're like, oh, you didn't expect this. The Harvey Dent style third act where you're like, you did not expect Two-Face in this film. But no, it's an entirely generic, dismal, children's ho-hum, humdrum fantasy type third act. I mean, it's... Did you ever see Inkheart? You saw Inkheart, didn't you? We saw it together. I I was actually thinking this is really reminding me of Inkheart stroke the Spiderwick Chronicles. Spiderwick Chronicles, yeah. So any other underachieving... um, Oh, uh, The Seeker. The uh, the Dark is Rising film. Any other underachieving fantasy that happened that after Harry out Potter? Got on the coattails of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter because studios, studios were like, we, we need one of them. Get, get us one of them. Sweet, sweet fantasy. And it's like, well, no, wait a second. Just, just just being a children's fantasy book, or at least having that as the source material, doesn't mean it'll be great. No. And it, when you do have great ones, Narnia. Don't shit them away. Absolutely. I was just about to say, Narnia was the only one that came even vaguely close, and by the third one, they just couldn't be asked. Disney anymore. rejected it after the first two. Warner Brothers rejected it after they fluffed the third one, and they're still thinking about doing it again. So they go to Dame Judi Dench's loop, like, they're still within 1943. To do that, they go to that, sh- that sunken ship I mentioned before, and they raise the Titanic. How do they do that again? Emma fills it with air. Emma fills the entire ship with air. Yes, she does. She literally, she blows air into the whole ship and it floats up. That's not how physics works. On any level. Because it's full of water. It's rusted to fuck. It's full of holes. It wouldn't move. There's There's no integrity to hold the air in. The air would escape in bubbles and the ship would go nowhere. Let's say she can just control that then, right? Should we just say that she can control exactly where the air goes? She does do that bobblehead charm thing. Yeah, the bobblehead charm out of Goblet of Fire. So it's possible then, let's say, that she has created a huge bubble inside the ship, yeah, like an internal that she's membrane, controlling magneto stuff. That she has filled yeah. with air. Yeah, aerokinetic. We're going to go ahead and say that she can literally control where air goes and that iron will obey her. Rusted iron. Did they give kids tetanus shots in 1943? I don't they honestly didn't. know. No. Kids were dying of polio. Kids were dying of smallpox. Cannot say enough good things about vaccinations. So they have to find a new home on this boat because their old home gets destroyed. Eventually the loop runs out. The bomb finally falls. And it gets invaded by monsters. And Samuel L. Jackson goes, ha, 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 it was I all along. And he looks like a right pillock. Samuel L. Jackson has an incredible presence to him. You have to work hard to make him look silly. They gave him white eyes, like crazy Einstein white hair, like Doc Brown. And then, like, really big, pointy, jagged teeth. Like this all the time. You have to know, as a director, that when you give your actor teeth like that whatever they say to their like it's, it's a minus 10 to their power and presence automatically all of their charisma gone because they're talking through teeth like this just have him talk through Samuel L. Jackson teeth all the time and then just once have him go ah, that is so much more effective
another seaside pier, go from the 1943 loop. Like I said, they're now in the Titanic. Uh, although apparently the ship's name is the Augusta. And this is their new loop in the end. Like, they're living the same day over and over again with this one girl having to control, like, at every second of the time. She can't... She can't cough in case she loses the hull integrity of this bubble. She's always got to keep them aloft because they're in this giant, iron, rusted sieve that is begging to return to the seabed. And it is covered in just rusted, jagged metal. And every single child there, every time you play, little kids, every time you fall over on this decrepit, degrading deck, I don't care that she controls the air. You fall through the decks onto a bunch of spikes. Here's an idea. Having lifted it, get in how another about boat. a little sequence where they use their powers to work as a team to fix things? Like Olive's flames could be focused to weld stuff. Yeah. A-team that shit. Yep. Bronwyn is super strong. Have her carrying slabs and sheets of metal back and forth across the boat. Heartboy can resurrect the deceased crew who are probably still in there. Quite like Get them to help out. Yep, why not? Yep. I'm desperately trying to think what the bee kid could do, but, you know. Honey, it's what's for dinner. Every single day. Like, surely one of them has the power to, like, like wave your magic wand hand and go, this one has the power to turn things back in time to return the boat to its former glory. Yeah. And, like, he's got to hold that, but it feels slightly less ridiculously dangerous and you can't keep kids in this environment than what they are left with. Mm. The nightmare. Oh, the plant girl could bring up seaweed to plug holes with and things. Why not? Anyway. So they go to br- the the pier, and then a bunch of like I, I, we're gonna cut in through Blackpool. all this shit in Blackpool. Again, it takes a special kind of director to get Terence Stamp, an a English man, man, to say it's in Blackpool. It's Blackpool. Everyone from Britain will say Blackpool. Blackpool is the place where all the monsters will converge to to feast on this time loop that they've invaded. How do they communicate? How does the 2016 woman communicate with the 1943 woman? There's no out. Like, we never... Like, do they send each other snail mail postcards? They don't have email? This is ridiculous. They don't have owls. They have, like, scrying pools, crystal balls. You can't do this shit without communication. Well, like I said, you step out of the loop and go to the nearest post office. Queen Dench comes to them after her loop gets completely screwed over. Mm. That's the first time she's been outside. But she's been reliving 2016 over and over and over again. Except for the fact that it is 2016. So what? Was this loop set up in March and it's now August? What? Well, it, it says that Imbreen's normally, when they have the choice, set it up on a perfect day. So it had to be within the first, what, five days of 2016 before David Bowie died? The first... Second of 2016, like because like the second second of 2016, everything went to shit. And after that, it was all downhill. There's a bunch of monsters invade this old black pool. Where are they? Like an old club? It looks. I'm not sure. It's a dilapidated old club. Could be filmed very cheaply in Blackpool. Well, it looks that it's specifically Blackpool. Blackpool. It would suggest that it's Blackpool Pleasure Beach, but it just looks like a, a. Cheap ass fairground. It looks like Margate. A shitty like Blackpool looks oh, no, like Margate. Margate hasn't got any of that. Yeah, all right. 
Not even crap. Ramsgate. Anyway, uh, it so it looks very Skegnessy. So then, a bunch of invisible monsters attack, and then uh, a, like the Heart Boy gets a bunch of skeletons to attack the invisible monster. So you got a bunch of CGI creatures fighting a bunch of other CGI creatures, and then the kids are throwing like gunge at the invisible monsters and snowballs. Snowballs. Candy floss, yeah. various sweets, in order to stick to them and make them visible. I so will these creatures won't you, come and eat their eyes. I was just about to say, I would remind you that this is in a movie where they had a pile of children's eyeballs on a table! There's higher stakes than this. Throw lead at them. Throw burning hot lead. Drown it in hot lead! Nuke it from orbit. The only way to be sure. So we sat and watched this shitty generic action sequence where some CGI things fight some other CGI things. And I went, you know what? Tim Burton is so monumentally tedious as a director. And everyone keeps going, oh, he's so inspired. Oh, oh, he's so peculiar. Oh, it's so interesting to see what he does with all of this stuff. It's boring. Now, I don't want to turn this into an attack on Tim Burton himself. This is more a reflection on how little his films have to offer me in particular. And it's really hard to say that I grew out of him many, many years ago without implying that people who like Tim Burton, and there's plenty of them, are somehow immature. But I feel like I recognized so many more directors who do similar things to him, but offer more substance. It might just have been down to when I listened to the commentary for, I want to say, Beetlejuice? You know, very sprightly, fun film, but he is a dull presence on commentaries. Take a, take a listen to one. Everyone's got to have a Tim Burton DVD which has got a commentary on it. Just sit down and actually really absorb his voice and see if you can count the number of times he makes you go, oh. And again, it's impossible to make this not sound like a personal attack. It feels like we needed him as a culture in the late 80s, very early 90s, but he didn't advance his techniques, his style, his maturity his abilities, beyond there. I love Big Fish, by the way. Big Fish is a lovely film. And a great deal of that could be down to the writer, John August. One of the things that Tim Burton is actually capable of, occasionally, is beauty. There's moments here and there. Several bits in Edward Scissorhands. There's a couple of moments with Ichabod's mother in Sleepy Hollow. A great deal of the imagery in Big Fish, and a great deal of the heart in that. And there's moments of genuine softness and affection in Miss Peregrine, and the sense of something wondrous. I wouldn't be this irate if I didn't catch that. And that's admirable, but it's almost beauty as observed by a small child. If you remember the bits with Ichabod and his mother, Ichabod's a small child there. It's, it's like a small child being stilled by something naturally beautiful or a beautiful woman. He certainly has this adoration of strong, gentle women, which is good. It could be so much worse. And if you watch Ed Wood, that's Tim commiserating with another director who was, it seems, cut from the same cloth who he felt a kinship with, clearly. But Burton never struck me as somebody desperately frustrated that their vision wasn't held up as art. Quite the opposite. Burton has been celebrated and celebrated in a way that Ed Wood would be astonishingly envious of. He's a super success story. An oddball who makes movies about oddballs for the general public. However, I nailed this down during the edit. The third edit because this one went through many iterations. 
but this is the final edit here that I'm doing. Tim Burton doesn't have deep pain as a director, as a storyteller. And I don't think that's absolutely necessary for every single director. But when it comes to telling bittersweet, albeit crazy, fantasy stories, you do need to be able to go somewhere. You do need to be able to access a part of yourself to make vulnerable for the audience. And I'm thinking as hard as I can, and honestly it comes down to Edward Scissorhands is the one that really has that sense of melancholy and loss apart from Big Fish. And there's moments in Big Fish that are most definitely adult pain, mature pain, experienced, weathered pain. And I feel like the depth that I'm looking for is keyed into that experience. I'm going to ruminate on this because obviously we've got other Burton films to uh, cover. And I'm sure we'll cover three or four of them that we like in the future. One or two of them that just drive us nuts. But honestly, if Burton's got a lot of pain in his life, he keeps it to himself. So where were we? Oh yeah, a bunch of CGI skeletons were fighting a bunch of CGI monsters. And I stopped, rewound, paused at the beginning of the sequence. And I thought, you're gonna need a really good pop song for this to make the scene memorable. Just just tell the people the actual song that they had playing over this. Because like, something like old-timey fairgroundy music or something would have been quite creepy and evocative. And Yeah, like... because this is your final fight scene. No, instead, it's like mid-90s, not quite the prodigy. The like of which they would have been playing at crapped-out fairgrounds in, in the, the 90s, 2000s, late 90s. Which have not updated themselves, and that's why they're dying. And it's, it's just this tedious... Like, I can't, I can't hum it, because every time I try to hum something that's like The Prodigy, I find myself going... Invaders must die! It's very easy to remember something that has a beat that you can dance to. It's even easy enough to remember something bad. It's very difficult to remember something boring. It's such a shit sequence. I swapped it out as I am wont to do. I like one of the things I'm really, really good at is watching a sequence, getting a feel for the beat, and then thinking of a song that would go really well with it. Seven Season Ride by Queen. Boom. And it improved that sequence tenfold. It really did. He does this quite a lot, by the way, and it is always eerily perfect. One of my favourites was hard boiled. The hospital scene, at the point when he's walking into the room and is like, oh my god, tension, tension, and then it breaks out into, you know, incredible gunplay. The Jabba's sail barge music, the Pit of Carcoon, just just cue it up next time you're there. It cue, It's phenomenal how well that those go together. I try to put these on YouTube, they get kicked off because it's like, unfair use! My favourite still remains um, when you queued up the opening scene from Drive with... 
City um, of Stars. City of Stars from La La Land. I personally like the fact that Two Tribes goes with almost any action sequence That's where it's two, with two <laughs> tribes battling. The wolves in uh, Twilight 3 Eclipse versus the new vampires when two tribes go to war. And there's a, a Ghibli film called Pom Poco where these giant raccoons with giant testicles are about to go to war with each other when two tribes go to war with giant testicles. Uh, it, it, it always works. So back to, like, after the end of this stupid sequence, they go back inside this dilapidated club. Samuel L. Jackson comes and goes, ha, 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 and then turns into Asa Butterfield. And then they go, which one is which? And then Asa Butterfield's like, I know that I'm me, because I can see the demon creeping up behind the other version that's definitely not me. And then Samuel L. Jackson, Asa Butterfield, turns around and goes, no, it's me! And then he gets his eyes sucked out of his head. What happens to that monster? Very inconclusive. I don't know. Somebody must kill it. The kids fight back against the I monsters. Don't I don't know if this is before or, or after like the skeleton fight, but um, they, they fight back against the monsters. They win. They get back on the ship. They go off, and Asa Butterfield has to leave. He's like, oh, that's really sad. I have to leave my friends behind. Off you go on your loop. And then he goes back to his reality, and Terrence Stamp's still alive because when he got off, it must have been January 2016. Prior to David Bowie dying and prior to his grandfather dying. So he has a little talk with his grandfather, nothing particularly conclusive. It cuts to him jumping through multiple different wormholes and loops and things. Yes? Right. She's got a hand up. You get off a time loop in January 2016. <laughs> and your instant response... Is I want to go back to 1943. Is I want to go back to 1943 to be with Floaty Emma and not just so many things that need to be repaired and tweaked. So, yeah, he goes back through various loops. Uh, one of them's in, like, a Japanese phone booth. But because he's peculiar, like, he's able to go through holes, wormholes that other people aren't. And he goes through and in and out, and he, like, follows them, and he's travelling the world. And eventually he ends up on a ship in the Navy, and he joined the Navy, and it's like, oh, I see, you tied it in with the Philadelphia Experiment. There's an audio drama podcast called Ars Paradoxica, which also concerns the Philadelphia Experiment and did it a lot better. It's one of the most weirdly mundane and thus believable accounts of time travel. You were very much put in the shoes of someone who's like, right, I guess I'm kind of living back in the 1940s now. And I'm missing a lot of things. But let's finish off Miss Peregrine. Then he ends up back on this twisted Hulk, like helping out the kids. Trying to make sure that they don't fall eyes first onto jagged spikes. And uh, Miss Peregrine is watching this ship go by and she flies off in peregrine form to rejoin them like she, she's free now and she's free to be her psychotic obsessive headmistress again and make them live the same day again and again and again and again and like let's let's establish a pattern here shall we we're going to be here forever and ever and ever wouldn't it have been better if they end up sailing the world but deciding not to be in a loop anymore like so much psychological damage in this film is not healed. So many bad habits are not fixed. 
and it comes out going, well, that was a happy ending, wasn't it? The the peculiar person who feels ostracised from society gets to be with his other peculiar friends, and doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? During the third edit, I decided to do some more research into the book and start reading through the wiki, and I found some things which might shed light on what we're discussing. The Imbrines... Uh, if, if you actually go to the, the quote from the uh, the book on Imbrines from Miss Peregrine, we create temporal loops in time which anyone can live indefinitely. Only women are born Imbrines. We Imbrines must scour the countryside for young children in need, steer clear of those who would be harmful, and keep our kind fed, clothed, hidden, and steeped in the law of our people. And if that isn't enough, we must also keep our loops resetting each day like clockwork. It sounds terrifying. It, it honestly does. And here's the other thing. And I hadn't realised it and didn't realise it while watching the film, didn't realise it while talking about it with Sharon. Imbrines have three powers, not two. Avian shape-shifting, that's turning into a bird. Time manipulation. And memory manipulation. Imbrines are able to manipulate other people's memories and certain memories. Now, start digging on that one. Start pulling the thread on that one, folks. That island that I was telling you about, Cairnholm, the whole place was destroyed by bombing. What Miss Peregrine does is rewind the last day of that island. It seems like everybody got killed. She effectively gives them all one more day. But the kids are the only ones who know about this. Everyone else on the island is forced to do this Groundhog Day scenario. Only they don't know they're in a Groundhog Day. They're just living it again and again, and occasionally Miss Peregrine might kill them with a crossbow. But it's okay, there are no consequences, we'll do it all again tomorrow, ha ha ha. Again, this is a fascinating concept for an antagonist in a film. Someone who believes she's doing good, and is trying to preserve this tiny shred of island. Some, a place that she has fallen in love with somewhat. In crafting this sage character... Ransom Riggs inadvertently created a far more interesting villain than the villains he has. But imagine if he realised that and made this story about that. This obsessive woman looping the island. And we can explore, maybe there were times when she tried to get everybody off the island and people just called her a wacko and nobody left and they all got killed by the bomb at the end and she's left crying amidst the ashes. And if you tie that back to the children who she failed to save, her own friends, this is a penance. And when you're talking about memory manipulation, I'm wondering if there were days when the kids tried to escape, but she changed things. Maybe fiddled with their memories. How much better would it have been if there was a scene where a, one of the girls was like, I'm just going, and then Miss Peregrine just waited, and then the girl went, hang on a second... Have I tried to leave before? And then the whole thing comes pouring out about how Miss Peregrine blanks their memories every day. Some, she's blanked their memories only of the bad times, the times when they desperately try to escape. And unlike a certain J.K. Rowling penned film, which you're about to podcast on, you can build the dramatic structure around this concept rather than just going, oh, this, with a hand wave. Ultimately, the story then being told is children being raised in abusive families, or maybe hyper-religious families, or maybe if they're homeschooled, but certainly kept from the outside world. Hashtag not all hyper-religious families, hashtag not all homeschooled kids, where they're 
loved still in a twisted way by the parent and told this is what's best for you. And they have to get away to realise it really wasn't what was best for me. We've barely even mentioned Harry Potter, but consider how much of a character piece that was. How much of a journey that was. This is barely a step out the door. And it got middling reviews. People were like, oh, isn't it fun to watch? Oh, this wasn't very good. No one was enraged by it like we were. I think a few people were, but for different reasons. Yeah. So I will fully accede, by the way, that ours is the minority experience of this. To which end, maybe it's not harmful at all. Maybe people are just enjoying it. You know, it, it made at least twice its money back. Oh, we forgot about the Invisible Boy. There's an Invisible Boy in this film. <laughs> to be fair, he spends most of the film not there except for a disembodied voice telling people that, yes, he is indeed running around here. You know what? I didn't see him. Oh, I'm a little cockney thief, I am! And uh, there is a point where they're in that Beware the Moors pub... And this boy comes in and starts throwing stuff around, like throwing people's pints in their faces, which means that a naked boy is running around the pub. Gross. And Miss Peregrine apparently encourages him to be naked. This kind of behaviour, but certainly doesn't seem to discourage it a great deal. Also, there's something very creepy about the fact that Jake kind of leads Emma, his potential future wife question mark By around a on a rope yeah. half the time oh fucking hell they have a weird system of values as well none of the children seem like children none of them seem real none of them seem to have feelings well because they're not children because they've been stuck in 1943 bodies for at least Ugh. 60 years this is the Cullens yeah, Only the Cullens were kinda. nice people, by and large. By comparison. The vampires in Twilight were nice, well-adjusted people by comparison to this bunch of creeps. Whoa. Even the Adams family. Like oh, the, the Adams family. The, the point of the Adams family was that for themselves, they are normal. The Adams family was so much fun. It was. Yeah. Wow. We will, at the very least, by the end of this year, because the animated movie's coming out, cover... Our personal favourite of the two, Adam's Family Values. And the animated version, I believe, stars Eva Green as Morticia and Oscar Isaac as Gomez. He has my father's eyes. Gomez, take those out of his mouth. (laughs) Anyway, that was Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children. And we're curious, because there's going to be people out there who've actually read the book. We would, I believe, benefit from hearing... A moderately detailed, positive reading on the film. Don't just go, oh, I really liked it. Uh, or, and this is even worse, if I say, oh, I just saw A Monster Calls, just wonderful film, you guys need to see it. I really didn't like it. Fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. I don't care that you don't like it. <sighs> don't hold back, honey. Get it off your chest. Yeah. And I realise there is a certain irony in me saying that we don't want to be, we don't want to tear things down when I have basically just torn just this thing, torn to, this sh- thing to shreds. Down. You but say. I will remind you, big plate of children's eyeballs. That was a big thing for me. This is different, though. This is not responsive to. This is just laying down what we feel about this movie. Mm. We are not mailing this podcast <laughs> to Tim Burton. <laughs> No, no, just to anyone who likes this film. Oh, you like this film, do you? Well, just listen to this hour and 20 minutes. Listen to this. 
You'll feel sad. No, quite the contrary. Anybody who likes this film is completely welcome to ignore everything we've just said. I can't... You know that whole, like, oh, just switch your brain off? No! No, I will not switch my brain yeah, off. This, I need it to live. Hang on, no. This, <laughs> this film is switch not... Switch your heart off. This film is not asking people to switch their brain off. It's not... It's definitely asking you not to question it. So many things happen arbitrarily. No, I think it, it, it does try to explain things. It just doesn't explain them in a way that... It, Seems rational. It's if nothing else, comprehensible. If I found out that this was Scientology, I'd go. Ah, I knew there was something. <laughs> I knew there was something. Because I mean, Scientology doesn't stand up to to psychological reasoning or questioning. In fact, they absolutely they hate want, psychology. Yeah, it wouldn't want to stand up to psychological reading. It it. That's why it reminded me of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. But there, there's the reason that I am so infuriated by Scientology is that it takes psychological principles and uses them backwards yeah. to hurt people. And then they say actual psychology and actual psychiatrists and, and, and medically trained mental health practitioners who might try to convince you that all of this is bad, don't listen to them because all mm. of this is good and they are in fact evil. P.S. The end sequence, the end credits are actually really good. They've got, like, I, I can always find the silver lining if I try Florence hard enough. Florence and the Machine. Florence and the Machine Yay. do a song and there's some lovely vintage photos uh, in the background and it's a really nice end sequence. Probably nothing to do with Tim Burton. <laughs> it's like Tim we've come up with this yeah that's really good I'm going to my trailer I'm going to eat a lot of oysters <laughs> <laughs> how was there no oyster boy in Miss Peregrine's home that's a very I've good invented question. a new character fact, Ransom Riggs you know what oyster Tim Burton boy. instead of this you could have made the the melancholy death of oyster boy and, yeah. and collected works yeah like Got back in touch with your mate, Henry Selleck. Made it with stop motion. Got Liker on the phone, maybe. I, I really like Frankenweenie. Frankenweenie's great. That's Tim Burton. We watched Frankenstein the other day, um, and uh, Lyra said, I far prefer the dog one. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because it's better. Someone said to me earlier today, you prefer Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula? To the original Dracula with Bella Lugosi? Yes. I've only just seen the original Dracula with Bella Lugosi. It's all right. It's got a couple of bits in it that are quite effective. I've had Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula rattling around in my head since 1992. It's been with me all my life. Also, it's he doesn't great. have rubber bats on strings. Blair! There's so many good things in that There's movie. There's a marked lack of armadillos in that one as well. <laughs> Not, like, the quota of armadillos is so low. It's just tiny. Oh, did you see him in The Monster Squad? They yes, had armadillos. they had armadillos. <laughs> Genius. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if you want to hear our quick review of Tim Burton's The Circus featuring Dumbo, 
check out the $5 and up bonus feed on our Patreon. Here's a clip. And because everyone's so cruel, the circus itself feels repellent. You want to get away from it. And you want Dumbo to get away from it. But somehow the circus, or at least the scrappy performers, are the protagonists of this film. And just like The Greatest Showman, the question here is, oh, will these performers find themselves a successful home? And the answer is no, they won't, because circuses are terrible. Stop trying to spin the mutation of the circus in the 20th century from thruppany Victorian freak shows and bear baiting all the way to the WWE in just two hours of anachronistic period-setting film time. So that's Miss Peregrine's home for distressed falcons and uh, <laughs> and very distressed reviewers. And uh, we we will uh, see you next week. We will be talking about the 1999 film The Mummy. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School, School for, for Peculiar, Peculiar Children, Children is, is out. out. <laughs>
Speechless, speechless 